Well, my name is Dylan, and it is truly my great joy to be able to be one of the pastors here at Sojourn um, and to be able to preach. It is so encouraging to be among this people, uh, hearing you guys sing. And I, I'm sure it's not because that we're all happy and everything's fine all the time, because I know your lives well enough to know and my life well enough to know that that's not the case. We sing that way because we're singing to this Lord who put breath in our lungs. It's my great joy to be able to preach uh, to you who listen so well. It's so encouraging to look out and see you guys so intent in listening. And it's not because the preaching, I think, is particularly great, but because of the one that we're talking about in this word. So I just want to encourage you guys as we open up to Mark again today to, to continue to encourage one another. It can be an encouragement how we sing, how we listen, how we pray uh, with one another. Mark chapter 6 is where we are this morning as we continue working through the Gospel of Mark, and we'll start reading in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. This is God's word. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, as your people gather together, we pray that you would gladden our hearts. We're lifting up our hearts and our souls to you. And we're asking that you would help us. Uh, teach us your ways that we may walk in your truth. Teach us who you are that we might fear your name. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I think it was in 1987 when Disney decided to start doing an ad campaign. This ad campaign would take, after the Super Bowl, it would take the MVP, likely the winning team's quarterback, and they would say, hey, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do next? And they'd pay them money to say, I'm going to Disney World. It's interesting that they never thought to ask the losing team or their players. They never go over there and interview them. And they say, hey, you know what? You just suffered one of the most crushing defeats of your life. You just lost one of the most important games that you've played in up until this point. What are you going to do now? No one seems to care so much about that. Or perhaps using the losing team's players to capitalize on an ad campaign is not a good recipe for success. Well, Jesus and his disciples in the beginning of chapter 6 were just soundly rejected in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. You would think that this is the time for the gospel writers, for Mark, to take the mic away from Jesus for a second and let him have his moment of rejection. Put the mic away from his face. Ask somebody else what they're going to do next. But without skipping a beat, Mark records what Jesus is going to do next with brevity and balance and boldness. He says, if you look just in verse 6, it's a great verse. Jesus is rejected in his hometown and he marvels at their unbelief. He's astonished. He's amazed at their unbelief. And yet, in, without skipping a beat, it says, and he went, to, went about among the villages teaching. What balance. He's struck and marveled at their unbelief. And yet he goes about teaching in many villages. The striking part is what he does next. Jesus isn't retreating. He's going. He's teaching. 
That's what's so striking about verse 6, and it's such its brevity that he isn't retreating, that we got to remind ourselves that even in the face of rejection from people that he knew and grew up with in his own hometown who rejected him soundly, Jesus doesn't move to retreat. In fact, we need to know as his disciples that Jesus is never in retreat. He is never backing off and pulling off the front line. He is always advancing and moving forward. His kingdom is always advancing. When it looks like at times that it's in retreat, that it's time to pull back, we should know that Jesus' kingdom is actually still continuing to move forward as always. That he is always going in the positive direction. And Jesus' ministry shows constantly in the Gospel of Mark that not that Jesus is retreating, but that the enemy is retreating. Over and over and over again. They have to do everything that he tells them to do. They are constantly in retreat. Everywhere he goes, everywhere he teaches, everywhere he heals, the kingdom of darkness is pushed back further. And Mark shows not just what Jesus does next, but he also shows what he does with his disciples next. After being soundly rejected, what are the disciples to do? But not only was Jesus not retreating, but he was sending. He was going and teaching, and he was sending out his disciples into Galilee. And he sends them out with authority. Verse 7 says, He calls the twelve and begins to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus, who called his disciples, we saw this in chapter 1, to be fishers of men, to be able to go and make disciples, is telling them here to go do this. He told them that he would make them disciples. He told them that he would make them into fishers of men, that they could make more disciples. Now, through the Gospel of Mark so far, we haven't seen much from the disciples. Definitely nothing in the positive direction. They haven't put much on the positive side of the ledger. Here's what we know so far. They didn't understand the parables when Jesus taught them. So they had to question him. They were afraid when they were in a storm on a boat. They even a little bit wrong in their questioning of Jesus. Don't you care that we're perishing? They questioned Jesus after he's touched by a woman in the crowd saying, well, why are you asking who touched you? A lot of people around us. So, so far the disciples in the Gospel of Mark... uh, haven't really put much on the positive side of the ledger and maybe have been a drawback in some ways to Jesus' life and ministry. But this is the group that Jesus is going to send out. And you got to wonder, Jesus, are they ready? Like, can, it, can they handle this? They couldn't even handle a storm when you were right there in the boat with them and now you're going to send them away from you and you're going to tell them to go proclaim something and do something, cast out demons. Like, this looks like important work. Are they ready for this? And the answer is no. But look what Jesus does. He gives them authority over unclean spirits. He gives them what they need. They're not qualified by their own merits. They haven't somehow gained the right knowledge, then now you're ready to be sent out by Jesus. They haven't graduated from his school of grace. So now now you're ready to be out on your own and you can handle this. We couldn't say any of that of his disciples. They're not ready. They're not qualified. But Jesus gives them what they need to be effective. He gives them all that they need to do the work that he's calling them to do, that he's sending them out to do. God has done this consistently. Think of Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees this burning bush, and he goes up to it, and it's God who's speaking through this bush. And God calls him. He says, I've heard the cries of my people. I want you to go, and I want you to lead them out. And he says, well, who am I that I should do this? What does God say? Exodus 3, 11 and 12, I'll be with you. I'll I'll go with you. 
Well, Moses has another excuse. In Exodus 4, he continues the conversation. He says, well, they won't believe me. God says, well, why don't you throw that staff on the ground and see what it does? Why don't you put your hand in your cloak, pull it back out again, see what that does? Like, they'll believe you. Moses again says, but I'm not eloquent. I can't speak well. God says, who made your mouth? Who taught you how to speak? I'll be your mouth. I'll teach you what to speak. So at every turn, when Moses has these I don't know if I can do this. I'm not ready yet. Every turn, God promises that he's going to supply him everything he needs. That all that he's going to ask him to do, he's going to supply. That's what he promises to Moses. Because God doesn't send without also supplying. If he's going to send, he's going to supply. He's going to give us what we need. The 12 are not ready to go out on their own yet. But Jesus. But Jesus gives them all that they need. He gives them all what they need to go out and minister. And this is just a preview. It's, it's a, a mini preview of, of the Great Commission of where Jesus is going to send out not just his disciples, but his whole church to go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded them, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that, that's a big task. Here's a preview of it. He's going to send his church. Are they ready? Are we ready? No. No, we're not ready. I mean, you... Look past, like your past week. Are you ready? <laughs> but Jesus says, I have all authority. Jesus is the one who has all authority, and he's the one who sins. He's the one who promises that as he sends us, he goes, even, you need to know that I will be with you even to the end of the age. So Jesus is the one who not only has all authority and is sending us, but he's the one who promises to be with us. That means that disciples need to be confident That everything God asks of us, he's going to supply for us. He's going to give us what we need to do his work. Paul says something similar in in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the great Paul, right? And he says, this is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers. What does Paul look to for his sufficiency, to, for his supply, to be able to do all that God has asked him to do? He says, well, that's not for me. My sufficiency comes from God. Our sufficiency as ministers comes from God. And so too, all of Jesus' disciples through all the ages. That all God asks us to do, all that he sends us to, he's going to provide the means to do it. He's going to provide us the power to do it. He's going to provide us all we need to do it. And as we sing, and I hope we mean when we sing it, that if we in our own strength confide... Our striving, no matter if it is something that's a good thing, our striving in our own strength and power would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You ask who that is? It's Christ Jesus. Here the right man in chapter 6 sends these 12 with authority so that they could do all that he asked them to do. Their authority, their power, their strength didn't come from within. It came from Jesus. They didn't need to muster up their strength. They needed to depend upon the one that sent them. And his authority, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, is unparalleled. And it's been on display. Man paralyzed, drops down before Jesus, and not only does he forgive his sins, he tells him to get up and walk. Unparalleled authority. No one does this. Man possessed by a legion of demons. No one can help him. He lives in the tombs. Jesus says, be gone. 
legion of demons leaves. Unparalleled authority. This is the authority they are to tap into. This is the authority that he gives. He gives them authority to act. He even gives them authority to cast out unclean spirits. And this is not a new authority. It's the authority that Jesus has been showing all along. And the the work that he sends them on is not a new work, just like it's not a new authority. It's the work that he's been doing. They're just extending Jesus' work. They're carrying out Jesus' work, his ministry. And since Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God and displaying its authority, there has never been a need for a new work. Only ever the need for following in the the work that Jesus has already given. So be wary of, of, we have a new work here. We're starting a fresh initiative here. No, we need to... We need to continue on the the initiative that Jesus started to proclaim the kingdom of God in word and deed. Do his work. But here's what we have here is this invitation to participate and further not a new work, not a greater work, not a new thing, but to further his work. That's what he's inviting them into. You've likely heard the uh, famous quote from the great Hudson Taylor. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. What a great quote. But every time I hear that, I hear it in the context of Supply. God will always supply. I think, okay, that's great. He will. We think we have that promise and we can count on it. But he said that whole quote for a reason. It's God's work. It's God's way. And God's work, God's way, will never lack God's supply. That is, we're not carrying out our work. We're not carrying out a new work. We're carrying out God's work. And we're to do it in God's way. And that work and his way will never lack his supply. He always will send provision for this work. Look what he does here. Not only does he provide authority, but he gives them some instructions. Here's what you need to take. Very practical. I love it. Verse 8, he says, Take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. There's a simplicity here. And it's interesting that the things that Jesus tells them to take are very similar to what they are instructed to take in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, here's what he says. You, you shall, this manner you shall eat your bread. This is after the, the day of atonement. He's talking about here's how you spread some blood around your doorposts and, and get ready. Here's what you need to do. You need to have your belt fastened. There's a belt. Put your sandals on. Have your staff ready because you're going to go in haste. The four items to take are the same. All right. So there's this cloak or a tunic, a belt, sandals, and a staff, same as in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, it was pointing to the haste of their departure. You're going to have to get out of here. He's going to tell you to leave, and you're going to need to leave. But it was also preparing them. There's a readiness now to serve the Lord, to serve God outside of our bondage. And I think Jesus' instructions, mirroring that, are doing something similar. There's an urgency to their mission. You need to go do this. There's There's some urgency with it. Nothing is to detract from it. All this stuff might detract from it. We don't want anything to detract from this mission. There's an urgency to this mission. They're to have also a a constant readiness to serve the Lord. Don't be hindered by all these other things. You need to be ready to serve God. And as the Israelites were to learn to place their trust, not in material things, not in the gods of this world, but in the one true living God, so too the twelve are going to learn the same thing. As the Israelites had to learn that they didn't need things to even have bread to eat or water to drink, so too the the twelve are to learn how to pray and how to plead for God for what? Daily bread. That's how Jesus taught them to pray. They're going to have to lean in on that. They're going to have to learn what it actually means to pray for daily bread. They're not taking any. 
They're not taking bread. They're not taking a bag. They're not taking money. They're sent out as dependent children. They're going to have to depend on another, needing daily bread even. Now, this is risky. Not taking bread, no money. It's a risky venture. Not only that, but it's implied that Jesus says he's going to give them power to cast out unclean spirits. In other words, in your journey, in your mission, you're going to encounter unclean spirits. That's not easy to encounter. This is a, a pretty big undertaking. In what we think is the parallel to this in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus actually tells them, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Pretty good mission. Don't take anything. Uh, you're going to have some unclean spirits. You're, you're going to be sheep among wolves. You might get devoured. What's Jesus doing? He's teaching. He's discipling. He's teaching them what it looks like to live as part of God's family, as children of God, as dependent children of God, those who have to lean on him for their supply. They have to be weaned from their dependence on all other things to really know God's provision and faithfulness and strength and goodness. And brothers and sisters, God does the same for us. One author says it this way, that you will regularly have to take risks You will regularly feel pressed past your abilities. You will regularly feel like the husk of your life is being broken open and your seed scattered to the wind. Anybody there? The very process is meant to teach you dependence. You're living life in the kingdom and you're being sent as Jesus sins. This is what it's going to feel like. And that very process is meant to teach us something. That there is one who we can depend upon. And God loves to show himself as dependable. He loves to show himself as the provider. We're not making this up. He's the one that over and over again provides when there is no other way of provision. And he loves to show himself as the one who will do that. He's the one who loves to show himself as faithful, as trustworthy to all of his children who will look to him in their need. He loves to provide. Isn't that why he asks us to pray for even daily bread? Because he loves to supply it. The 12, as they're being sent out, they may have felt the risk of taking very little, of knowing they're going to encounter some very dark things. And maybe we feel the risk too. Maybe you live in that risk of, I feel like I'm pressed beyond what I can do. I'm being scattered to the wind. All that God has called me to, I'm, I'm not enough for it. I'm not sufficient for it. The calling to be single, the calling to be married, the calling to be a parent, the calling to be a friend, the calling to be a disciple maker can all require a lot of us and seem really risky, like we're being scattered to the wind often. And what we want to do at times is lean in on ourselves to have the self-dependence. That feels like the way to do things at times, like I just need to do better. I need to dig deeper. I need to try harder. But in reality, that only leads to more complications, One pastor says it this way, wisely. He says, there is likewise a simplicity of dependence. Unbelief is continually starting objections, magnifying and multiplying difficulties. Like, in a sinful world, as sinful people, there's all sorts of complications and difficulties. And have you noticed that in your unbelief, those just get more and more and more? It's complication upon complication. It's magnified and multiplied. But he says, but faith in the power and promises of God inspires a noble simplicity. 
And it casts every care upon him who is able and has engaged to support and provide. We get to speak about the God who has engaged to support and provide. And there's a simplicity in that if you're needy children to just say, I know where to go for my needs to be met. I go to my father who loves and has engaged to do that very thing. Meet those needs. Unbelief can come up with all sorts of objections. There are a million objections to the risk of being sent into the world as disciples, to make disciples. We don't know how to do this. We're not smart enough. I'm not brave enough. We could come up with many of these things. But let's ask this, what real risk is there when we're sent by Jesus? What risk is there with God as our Father? What risk is there with the risen one as our Lord? If we're dependent upon the one who created all things, from the one who rose from the dead, I think we're going to be okay. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? He says, look around, look at the birds. If God feeds the birds, if my father will feed the birds, doesn't he care more about you than birds? Surely he'll take care of you. Look at the flowers of the field. Look how God clothes the fields. If he does that, surely he'll take care of us. Or Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Paul is not saying that there's never any risk of starving, that there's never any risk of being unclothed and naked and alone. Jesus isn't promising the same thing. He isn't promising that we're never going to die. All things that he says here kind of correlates with what he said in Romans 8, 28. Remember that famous verse that God is using all things to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus? So in other words, he's saying that he's going to use all things. He's going to give us all things that we need to be conformed to the image of his son. He promises to supply that. In other words, no thing in our lives is out of control. No thing is being misused. Everything is being used to conform us into the image of Jesus, who looked to his Father constantly for provision, and God always provided what he needed. What he's saying is that ultimately he has us, he holds us, he will have us, and he will hold us eternally. He will take care of us, even unto death. He will do this. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things And so, it's a good thing to learn dependence. There's some simplicity and so much goodness in learning dependence upon this Father, upon this God, the God who would give up His own Son. It's good to learn to depend upon Him. It's good to be in relation with Him. He can be trusted with or without food, with or without clothing, with or without breath in our lungs. We can trust this God. He can be trusted even in suffering, even in death. He can be trusted. And so what Jesus wants is his disciples to walk with this simplicity of dependence. This freedom of dependence upon this God who loves to provide for his children. So what we need to learn is not how to be sent without bread. Or not how to be sent without money or clothing. But we need to learn how to be sent without our self-dependence. That we may trust in God. We need to learn not how to walk without bread, but how to walk without trusting in ourselves. 
Jesus, he sends out the 12 with provision, as he always will. He will always provide. But he also sends them out with a little bit more instruction. If you look in verse 10, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Simple enough. Go to a house, stay there. Accept the hospitality that is given to you. In other words, God is saying, like, I'm even paving the way. They don't receive you, don't stay there. If they receive you, stay there. Don't be hopping around house to house. Do what is offered to you. Stay there. So it's clear, I think, that Jesus is saying, like, this is not just a social outing. Meet as many people as possible by going, jumping house to house and, like, trying to get in every social circle. It's not what he's saying for them to do. There's a mission here. There's an urgency here. There's a readiness here. There's a solemnity to these instructions. And the serious nature of this mission resounds in verse 11. If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Here's what's implied here. Rejection is going to happen. And why wouldn't it? Happen to Jesus all the time. You're following your disciples of a man who is despised and rejected by men. It'll happen. He knows it'll happen. He gives us instructions for when it happens. This is what it's going to look like if you're going to follow Jesus. And so when it happens, he'll say, here, change your message a little bit. Change your technique. Next time when you come into town, come in on the south side. Maybe they won't see you coming. No. He says, continue on. Keep going. And Jesus isn't in retreat. He doesn't want his disciples in retreat. They are instead to shake off the dust on their feet as a testimony against that place. It's kind of like the way we use uh, washing your hands of something, like just being free and clear of something. It's a symbolic and sober warning that those who reject you, Jesus is saying, are going to answer to God. And you're to turn them over to that. That's what he's saying. The Jews would practice this when they would travel outside the promised land. They would come home and they'd make sure they got all the dust off their feet and their sandals as as an act of disassociation so that they wouldn't bring the pollution of those who would not conform to the kingdom of God into the promised land. And this is what the disciples are to do. You're, in a sense, turning them over to answer to the Lord. But you're, you're in that very nature, in that very symbol and warning, you're, you're trying to urge, again, repentance. Like, this is serious. We're shaking the dust off. You're before the Lord. You need to repent. And I think this could be done in good faith where the ministry of Jesus was extended. The ministry of Jesus is a ministry of word and deed. And Mark records that the disciples carried out this ministry. A ministry like Jesus's that came with word, but also came with deed. In verse 12, we read about that word. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. They heard the message and the commission from Jesus, and here's what they do with it. They start going out and they're proclaiming, you need to repent. This is right in step with the teaching of Jesus. Jesus comes proclaiming, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. This is his message. The message of the kingdom of God is a message of repentance. It's a message of switching allegiances. You're in one kingdom, and the message of the kingdom of God is get out of that kingdom and come into mine. That's repentance. Switch your allegiance from this kingdom that you're in to a greater kingdom. Switch from a small, temporary kingdom with small satisfaction, temporary satisfaction, and jump into the kingdom of God, an eternal kingdom, a powerful kingdom, where there's life with God under his reign and his rule. An eternal kingdom with eternal satisfaction. Repent means jumping into something better. 
turning from what's smaller to something so much greater. That's good news. It's an invitation. Repentance sounds harsh, but repentance from Jesus, from his disciples, is really a loving thing. Repent is an invitation to come and join the good life that's available with God. It's available to you if you would turn to it. There's life with God. But notice in this kingdom and this life with God that a response is necessary. The proclamation is repent. In other words, it, there, it requires a response from those who receive this message. There is no salvation. There is no part in the kingdom of God apart from repentance. There's no salvation. There's no part in the kingdom of God apart from switching allegiance. From saying, I served this kingdom and I'm no longer serving that kingdom and now I will serve in the kingdom of God. If that has not happened, then there is no part in the kingdom of God. If one has never repented of their sin, in other words, if no one has never seen their own sin and owned it as their own and turned from it to the living God, then there is no reason to think that you are saved. There is no reason to think that you have a part in the kingdom of God. The message of the kingdom of God is repent. There's something you're turning away from and something you're turning to. And so as the disciples went out proclaiming that people should repent, it reminds us all, I think, that we need to repent. That that's the first response that's needed. That's the first step needed to join the kingdom of God. But it also reminds us as Jesus' disciples that that's our message. It hasn't changed. The good news is that you can have life with God. Turn from your sin and live. Repent. That's the message of the kingdom. That's our message. It's good news. And it's all wrapped up in that word, repent. So we're to go out and we're to proclaim good news that people can turn from their sin and to a living God and have life with him, have relationship with him that's not just present now, but will be present for all eternity. That's the good news we get to go out with. And we say, repent. Life with God's available. If we would just turn from our little temporary small kingdoms to an eternal kingdom with a living God. We can have eternity with him. But like Jesus' ministry, the ministry of the disciples was not just a ministry of word. You notice in verse 6 that Jesus went out teaching. He is consistently in his ministry teaching. It is so essential and central to his ministry. The disciples do the same. They're going out proclaiming. But they don't just go out with words. They go out with deeds as well. There are two wings to the same plane. Word and deed. Verse 13 says, here's their deeds. They cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I think it's important to point out just in our moment that, that the oil didn't heal them. There are lots of good reasons for oils. They have some medicinal purposes. They did then. But it's important to know that these oils here, although maybe helpful medicinally, are not the reason people are being cured. The oil here is not magical. What's magical is the authority that Jesus gave these disciples. That's what's doing the work. The disciples went out with the very authority of Jesus, and just as his power to heal isn't in a thing like oil or a wand, so too their authority. It's not in a thing. It comes from Jesus. And it's flowing through them to heal. Their authority to cast out demons didn't come from their own strength or from some special oil that they carry that now we need to get a hold of somehow through some store. 
It came from Jesus. It's his kingdom authority that he gave to them. So their ministry here in chapter 6 is nothing more than an extension of his power and authority that he's been showing through the gospel of Mark this entire time. And everywhere Jesus' ministry is extended, we see the enemy retreating. The disciples just face rejection. He says, you're going to go out, you're going to face rejection. Jesus just faced rejection, and they're not retreating. The enemy's retreating everywhere they go. That's what's going on. And Mark's pointing, showing us this, that there's this ministry in word and deed. It's not show us like, okay, here's what's possible for you as disciples. You want to cast out demons? Jesus is the ticket. You want to heal diseases? Again, Jesus, he, he can give you what you need. Mark's point in showing us this is not for showing us what's possible as disciples, but to continue to show us the power and authority of Jesus. To continue to show us the power and authority of the kingdom of God, of the very Son of God. If we're left after this passage, we're thinking, man, look what I can do. We're missing the goodness of the Son of God here. We're missing the authority of the Son of God that Mark means to portray. So, Mark tells us, here's what they're able to do. Not so that he can emphasize the greatness of the disciples. They're going to fumble in so many ways as we go through the Gospel of Mark. They're not ready yet. But Jesus somehow keeps working through them. And powerfully. So Mark is making us like, look back. Whose authority is good here? Where's the power here? It's not in the disciples. It's the one who gave them authority in verse 7. It's from Jesus. So Mark, what does he do? He, put, he puts the mic in Jesus' face after facing rejection. You just got rejected in your own hometown. Your family got slighted. What are you going to do next? He says, I'm going to send. He'll do the same later. You just got put in a grave. You were crucified. You were dead. What are you going to do next? I'm going to rise. I'm going to send. With the same kind of power that I rose, I will send. Jesus is still calling his disciples to be fishers of men. And there's no retreat. You might have heard of some beheadings in the last couple days. And it's interesting that even in those dark, hard places where stuff like that happens, that the promises of God have not yet failed. That although we may lose our heads and Christians may lose their head all over the globe, that the church never loses her head. He's alive and well. He does not have us in retreat. No matter what's going on, he has rose and he sins. He's calling us to be fishers of men. And although it may look like we're in retreat, and we may be in retreat in some ways, the church is never in retreat. The kingdom of God never has been in retreat and never will be in retreat, and it will certainly be eternally established. And the invitation is, repent, be a part of this kingdom, so that I might send you as well. We can be a part of this kingdom if we repent. Turn from your sin and live. If you have not repented of your sins, that's the invitation. You can have life with God. Turn from your sin and live. And if you have repented, here's what we get to do. Be reminded that we're not in retreat. That the one that we are a member of, Christ, has risen and is doing fine. And so we get to celebrate that together. 
And one of the ways we celebrate that and are reminded that Jesus is risen and that he's coming back is that we take the Lord's Supper together. This is a victory meal on the field of battle. He prepares the table before us. And he says, like, I've risen. And so remember what I've done and remember that I'm coming back. It's a victory meal. So if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, this meal is for you. Come tear off a piece of the bread and be reminded that Jesus' body was broken so that yours might be healed. That his blood was poured out that you might have forgiveness of sins. And that as you take and eat this bread and this juice, you're reminded that Jesus is alive, that you're united with him through your faith, and that he's coming again. And do it in great joy. We are not in retreat. We're fishers of men. Would you bow in prayer with me?